Thank you all so much for joining today to talk about your forum on Isaac Mola's book, Imagining the World Global. Uh, so first off, Isaac, could you tell us what you see as the key contribution of your book? Great. Thanks so much, Valerie, for having us on the podcast. Really excited to be ta talking with you. I think that the, the main thing I want a reader to get out of the book is just a opening to think about knowledge production as a practice that is imminent to the world that is deeply embedded and enmeshed in the world. I, I kind of have this experience every time I go to ISA and I'm in one of those big conference hotels at some place in the world, there's all these people scurrying around and just thinking about all of the books and articles and research projects that come out of that and trying to imagine what would happen if we weren't meeting in corporate hotels, but we're meeting in a different kind of location or that to think about all of like all of my friends who have been forced out of the academy because of the terrible political economy of higher education and the fact that those voices are no longer in the room and therefore what kind of knowledge is being produced in relationship to the absence of who's not in the room as well as who is in the room. And so just to kind of think uh, very materially about knowledge and in doing so, I think that opens up a space to think politically about the ideas that we produce. I, I think we still have this deep, even among uh, critical scholars, there's a deep fetishization of the power of ideas, right? If we only find the right theorist and we interject it into IR, IR will be turned into something else and that something else would do great things in the world, right? And there's this like profoundly liberal politics around, around the power of ideas. And I think that what my book does is it opens up a space using the, the global imaginary as a way to think about kind of how the way that we understand the world, the ways that we imagine the world, we talk about it, the knowledge that we produce, how that's deeply embedded within the material realities. And I think that that's the major uh, contribution and, all, and also to denaturalize uh, this idea of the global and to kind of think about all the other ways that we could be imagining our interrelations with each other in terms other than global. So. Great, thank you. And so Olivia and Yonka and Isaac, feel free to jump in after. What's your biggest takeaway from the forum? Olivia? So I was thinking about that question. It's a bit difficult. And also listening to Isaac now, I guess it's very much receiving a direction, I think, in what we need to know in much more detail if we are committed to anti-colonial futures. And then strangely enough, that can happen by focusing on something as deeply entrenched into what I call, not me, but, you know, there's a tradition that calls the West uh, Babylon and all of that. But, you know, U.S. institutions or U.S. higher education is a very particular place to think through that. So I guess that's maybe my takeaway from the book is very much the forensics, I think, attitudes to archive and how even a focus on the West is a very urgent part I think, of an engagement with the world, and especially if you want to imagine it anti-colonially. And then from the foreign, specifically what I take away is, I guess, on the one hand, the power of collaboration and conversation. So it was really a pleasure to put all these people in conversation with each other, but also very much talking to Yonike and Isaac uh, about this and how, how we see different things and similar things and how that then produce, you know, whatever the forum ends up being. But I guess for me also, by reading the other's reactions, it's on the one hand, how we need to commit also to different registers. And, and I think specifically of Shira Amalek's text, who 
also deeply speaks of the tension between empire and colonialism and racial uh, racism and all of that next to political economy and Marxist analysis of what is this material world we're, we're looking at. So that will be the themes are there, the tensions between Marxism versus empire, let's say. And I don't think it's a tension, but it came out. But then also the fact that we are not forced to do this only in the usual academic format that also I think Isaac showed us where it's located, where it was built and these very narrow ideas of, of rigor that we might have. So those are my takeaways. Overall, I just really enjoyed doing this. <laughs> uh, Yonika, do you want to respond to that? Olivia and I have been talking so much about this forum for the last few months that my thoughts really echo Olivia's. But one thing that really strikes me in rereading the forum and the process of putting it together is the really creative intellectual community that Isaac and contributors have created and built and sustained and nurtured and continue to do so over time that really thinks through the relations between knowledge, power, and um, racial capitalism. And as Olivia said, in various registers, in various context in various forms, these conversations, which is, as Olivia said, one of the reasons that we open the forum after Isaac's opening words with Shira's imagery of, of, of cutting the stones. The forum itself, I think, really tries to contribute to something that I've seen Isaac and many of the contributors to the forum is creating these spaces to talk, to, to think together, to think collaboratively, to write collaboratively, to really try to find different ways of thinking against the grain of the kind of epistemic. But they have created a lot of spaces to try to cultivate knowledges that run it maybe a little bit against the IR that we were often disciplined into to thinking. Can, can I jump back in there? I think that was really great, Yannicka and Olivia, because it reminds me of this really powerful concept that Eli develops in his amazing book, Beyond Education, where he talks about thinking within and beyond the university. And I think that what my focus on the university does is it allows us to think, hey, wait a minute, the theorists that I find most compelling, Marx, Gramsci, you know, a whole list, Césaire, Senghor, like all of these thinkers, Cabral, who are related to the academy, but are also using academic work, not only to secure a job and find funding and get grants, that kind of material kind of calculation, but also to fundamentally transform the world. And being in the university is sometimes really helpful for that. And being outside the university is sometimes really helpful for that. So I think that by, by centering the academy in, at the center of my analysis, my goal is to kind of say, hey, if we think of this not as the one place to do a certain type of thinking, but one space of possibility that makes certain types of work possible, but also forecloses other kinds of work. How is it that we navigate within, beyond, outside, in the undercommons of that institution and kind of engage it strategically? And I think that we've gotten kind of, there's just kind of assumption that critical work can only be done in the university and therefore our horizon has become the university and the walls of that institution that block it off from the world and the kind of um, fetishizations that go into its hierarchies have just become naturalized. 
And so I think that it's helpful to think, no, if the goal is liberation, then it, at what points is universities helpful in that? And at what points are they a hindrances? And how do we navigate those spaces in a skilled strategic way? And so I think that that idea of really kind of focusing on the university in order to create and cultivate to use Robbie's idea of, of cultivating knowledge, right? How is it that we can think of, of, of spaces within and outside the academy for cultivating, cultivating a politics of study? You know. So I think that leads nicely into the next question, which is to everyone, but I'll ask you first, Isaac. Isaac, you question and call for a refusal of the separation of the academy and politics. What do you see as the next steps in this endeavor and how do you think this would affect the field of IR? I remember as a grad student, just being so frustrated. I mean, there's lots of things about grad student life to be frustrated about, but um, about this idea of the literature, right? Writing for the literature. We got to, where does this fit in the literature? What does the literature have to say about this? How do we make a contribution to the literature? And it was just like this completely stifling, alienating experience, right? Where my intellectual life you know, in the bars and in my friends' uh, houses and in the seminar rooms was so much more richer and more vibrant than the literature, right? And yet the academic professional writing that it was expected to do or imagined myself as expected to do was in this very narrow, constrained way of writing for the literature. And I think that hopefully by thinking about the academy as a a space that is itself a material instantiation of, of struggles. Like the universities that we live in now are the result of generations of political victories, right? All the victories that uh, that were made to democratize, to expand, to increase funding for, to radically transform the the pedagogy, to allow women and people of color into these institutions, to transform the institutions, expand, like all of the work that went went into, but also these profound counter-revolutions about student debt, the repression, the professionalization, uh, regimes around tenure, neoliberalization of work uh, loads, academic speed up, all of that is part is part of a an effort to constrain the political possibilities of universities. So if we think about the institutions that we inhabit as the physical and instantiations of past political struggles, then I think that it allows one to see themselves as participating in that history, right? And and how is it that instead of saying I am an academic, I work at the university, that means this, the literature is that. How am I going to make my contribution into the literature? And then as I sail off into sunset can say, well, the literature w- uh, was going at 90 degrees and now is going at 91 degrees because I made one minor deviation and the literature is now. But instead, if you think about, you know, the institutions that we're a part of and the relations that we're a part of, if you think about the university and even disciplines themselves and knowledges, the architectures of of knowledges as themselves networks of political relationality, right? Then one can both think structurally, but at the same time, think in a way that allows one to conceptualize a way of strategically intervening in that. I'm not, I'm not saying this is in any, any way new. We, there's a, a lot of people in our discipline who have done exactly this, right? Who have said, we need space. We need to politically create 
a, a different kinds of spaces. We have to support people. We have to uh, nurture certain ideas, creating sections and caucuses to do exactly that kind of work, doing all of the let the legislative, uh, the, all the kind of political work uh, within the academy to create spaces for certain types of knowledges. So all, all of this is ongoing, right? It's um, in a way I'm, I'm summarizing um, or maybe highlighting work that's already being done um, in many ways. Yolika? One thing I really love about making the world global is that every chapter you see political struggle within particular constellations of the university and higher education. So we have the, in the era of national security funding and the Cold War, we have these anti-war professors trying to create these spaces in the era of the post-colonial African University World Bank funding. We have these intellectual communities surrounding the University of Dar es Salaam, for example. And as Eli points out, that makes the book great to teach with as well. And then I see the book itself, as I hint at earlier, I see the book itself doing something along these lines. And you get a real sense of that when you read the preface, the political struggles that the book was written during around and thoroughly shaped by. Olivia? Yeah, so where does this take us? I think what I felt reinforced in or encouraged by, by engaging with the book, but also the forum is, it's not that it just denaturalizes a lot of what's happening in our world, but also demystifies it. And I have to say something that I have tried to bring into the classroom specifically, I'm teaching in international development studies. And I think that's just one corner of IR, but in many of the corners of IR, or even at the center, there is so often this reflex to take the world as it is, and then mystify to the extent like, oh, it's so difficult to, I don't know, understand, and the literature says this, and again, you know, we have all these pretty incestuous conversations that then forget what they wanted to speak to. And so what I guess I was reminded of the power of genealogy, because in the beginning, when Isaac was speaking, one could think like if we, if we point at, at uh, trusting IDs too much and, ID, and IDs to change the world, you can uh, be left with the feeling that, okay, then there is nothing we can do, right? But in a way, by pointing at the material in so much detail, you get the opposite and you get the invitation to participate as political actors within that particular space. So that for me is the demystifying and what I also then try to bring to the study of international development is that let's demystify where poverty or inequality comes from. It did not just fall out of the sky. So if we trace where it came from, so that for me is in a nutshell, not, not so nutshell, I mean, I spoke for a long time, but um, to try and think what does the detail of all these years, like the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, what, we don't even know that much about it, or me personally, but it helps us not with clear-cut solutions or paths to go, but as a reminder that literally at any moment we are in the university, yeah, there is these needles that we can can do something with. So, so that for me would be like really the, the political lesson there. And then the other very concretely would be an invitation to think about abolition. So very concretely, what is it that we maybe need to think in a strangely deeply constructive way? What do we need to get rid of for these imaginations to go in a direction that is more liberatory or um, anti-colonial in that sense? 
Great. Does anybody want to respond to anything that's been said? I think that that's all like really great. And I think that in a way the book has an inherent tension to it, which I think can be read in lots of different ways. And that comes out in the forum. I'm thinking of Randy's piece in particular, in that I think that part of what I'm trying to do in the project too, is to rethink what a structuralism can look like. And I think that we disciplinarily, we have a kind of generally, I think, fairly uninteresting way of thinking about structuralism. And I think that what Randy's piece does that's really nice is kind of challenges the question of to what degree is the work of the book just historicism versus a form of structuralism? And to what degree is that going into and kind of laying out these kind of you know, in a way, how individuals worked within individual institutions, right? And thinking about that as also structural um, moments. I think that he's rightly critical in thinking that that could be overly historicist, right? And I think that in a way, what, what I'm trying to do with the book is to kind of, I mean, Althusser makes this interesting admission at one point in one of his, his essays where he says that one of the failures of his structural work was that he wasn't able to explain how to describe empirical phenomena. He could kind of explain how structures work, but not how to understand a particular event or conjuncture as a, a structural manifestation. And so part of the book is to kind of take the theoretical architecture out and to tell that story of structure through kind of the empirical story itself, right? And I do think that there's a lot of room to critique that approach, you know, and I think that there's some limitations, but I think that what it does is it kind of opens up thinking about thinking about this binary of structure and agency and this clash and like, oh, we can't think structurally because we can't think agentically, but agentically does, you know, all that, that kind of nonsense. But instead to kind of say, well, how is it possible to think both things at the same time, right? And if you imagine a structure that's so complicated and so overdetermined and embodies so many layers and levels of contradiction, then one begins to see something like, I think, an ability to understand oneself as an agent, but also structured within that sets of relationships. So deeply embedded within contradictory social relations, which include, but are not limited to capitalist relationships. And kind of what does it mean to, uh, to then see that as a moment of analysis that allows for strategic thinking through of the institutions of which we're a part? So. That's exactly what I meant with demystify, but then in a much more sophisticated way is. I'm, I'm sure that there'll be many people who hate it. <laughs> the the Althusser is, you know, I think in many ways wrong. So lastly, Isaac, could you talk a little bit about your future projects? Great. Yeah, absolutely. I have, I have a book that's coming out this year on Coke funding behind the uh, campus free speech movement. So starting in 2017, especially on U.S. campuses, but uh, we, we have a chapter exploring how it's been exported internationally. There's been all of these provocative students who come to campuses that cause all this uproar and all this controversy. And then conservatives say that they're being retaliated against, et cetera, et cetera. 
And the book that's co-written with activist researcher named Ralph Wilson, Ralph and I argue that the speakers who come to campus, the student groups who bring them to campus, the groups that sue universities in order to allow these speakers on campus, the media outfits that amplify the outrage, the political organizations that then pass campus free speech movement uh, legislation are all funded by a kind of plutocratic libertarians that are kind of within the Coke donor network. And we kind of examine kind of the role that higher education has played for the libertarian right and their political strategy and the strategy that they've used to try to gain greater access to higher education and situating the campus free speech movement within that. So again, it's kind of a way of looking at the materiality of something, not realizing that this is part of an orchestrated political strategy that, uh, that can be traced. And then the, the kind of the larger book that I'm, I'm working on now is on land-grant universities. Many American flagship institutions are land-grant universities or, or um, many of the pu public universities. And they were created in the mid-19th century when the federal government gave states land in the Western territories to sell and, and use the sale of that land to create endowments that would then create agricultural and technical schools. And so the book kind of examines what happens if we take that question of the land seriously, right? What were the conditions of possibility? What kind of extraction and, and who was dispossessed in order to create the material conditions for land-grant universities? And then how was the expertise in agriculture and technology that was cultivated in these institutions then used as a project of, of empire, kind of concluding with the Green Revolution and the kind of exportation of American science about technology, about agriculture and the way that plays out in the Cold War. So kind of examining American higher education through the lens of the land, land dispossession and the university as a kind of settler frontier historically and also kind of into the present as well. Yolika? Last night, I reread the introduction to Making the World Global, and I love how you situate the book in the introduction in the immediate aftermath of the terrorist attacks on 9-11, 2001. And you really put both U.S. higher education and your own book within that context and the process of writing your own book in that context. How do you think you will write the introduction to your forthcoming <laughs> book? written currently mm. wow that's a great question that is a great question because in a way that introduction is about the ground shifted underneath me right when i started writing the book everybody was talking about globalization it seemed impossible to ima imagine nationalist pro-border isolationists becoming kind of increasingly prevalent and so that was kind of a oh no i got to you know, reframe the book kind of moment. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think American higher education, but also many, many, many countries are facing crises of higher education. And I think that we're in a kind of a watershed moment where there's going to have to be a kind of reconceptualization of what higher education is, how it's funded, who has access to it, or it's going to kind of continue to rot from the inside and 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 be no longer sustain sustainable as anything other than job training which of course there's forces out there for whom that's exactly the point right so hopefully i'll be writing in a political moment where we can say that the institutions have become more just and inclusive 
and equitable and are working hard to kind of reimagine a different kind of future. But it could easily be that this is a, that the nostalgia of the land, the land grant university is something that seems particularly anachronistic, I guess. So I don't know. I, I, I think we, we are at a key moment, I, but that's a great question. That, that's a question that will haunt me for a while now. Fantastic. Thank you all so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you, Valerie.